All right, good morning, Story Fam. How are we doing today? Y'all good? All right. It's good to see you here in the Museum District. Beautiful, amazing week of weather that we've had here in Houston. Has there ever been a better week of weather in Houston than this? It's just been incredible. I want to say hello and welcome to everybody joining us online. And, of course, our brothers and sisters over at our Timber Grove campus in the Heights at 8200 Washington Avenue. Y'all say hi to Timber Grove. Just say hey. All right, let's have Timber Grove. We're glad that y'all are here today. If, uh, if we're not acquainted on a personal level yet, I'm Eric, and I'm the lead pastor here at The Story. And for the next half hour or so, I'm going to be uh, leading us through a, a topical kind of teaching as part of a, a series that we have been exploring together for the last three weeks. This is the end of the series. And uh, you've got study guides that you were given when you came in. Those should be online as well in the comments section of whatever platform you're watching online. And you all have them at Timber Grove too. And so those will help guide you along your way. If you're like me, a little bit on the ADD side of the spectrum, you can follow along with me and it'll kind of keep you uh, in line with where, with where I'm at in the message. All right, so this is part 404 in a series called Deep Tracks. The Deep Tracks series is an opportunity for us to explore the the lesser-known teachings of Jesus. So this isn't the sort of mainstream, which you'll always hear, the easy stuff you hear at church so often. Those are the greatest hits of Jesus. The deep tracks are the tracks on an album that you got to listen to the whole record to get. So the stuff that we're talking about is stuff most people, and I would venture to guess, even most Christians haven't really sat with these deep tracks um, to this point in their life and in their faith. And so we're doing it because if we're going to follow Jesus, you can't pick and choose. you got to follow all of him. Or don't follow him at all. And so some of these passages have been super, super challenging, like the one on divorce when we started the series. And every week's had its own challenges. Um, today's going to be an extra unique and special challenge because I think this deep track is a little bit different. It stands apart. Because usually we miss the deep tracks by accident, but we miss this deep track. Most of us have missed it on purpose. So it's not that we never came across this deep track. It's that we did and we hated it. It scared the bejesus out of us. And so we just moved on and pretended like it's not there. And surely someone knows the answer. I guess we'll find out on the pearly gates or whatever. It's like, we just, let's not talk about that one. Like when I was in middle school, I used to hide my report card from my parents in the, in the bottom of my, of my backpack. That's what we do with this deep track because it is so unsettling. We don't even want to deal with it. We would rather avoid it. So the deep track of the day is the so-called unforgivable sin. The unforgivable sin. Everybody go, ooh. All right, so it's October. It's time to be scared. Halloween's around the corner. Here we go. The unforgivable sin. What does this mean? Seems like Jesus is suggesting there's one thing you can do, one act you can commit that, well, it condemns you forever. And it raises anxiety in the room because most of us sit here and go, well, what is it? And have I already done it? <laughs> it's like, should I even be here? Can I just go watch the NFL or whatever? On Because I, I don't have a shot anyway, because I already did that one thing that Jesus said can't be or won't be forgiven. All right, so we, we, we know Jesus to be full of grace and mercy. We know Jesus to be a forgiver of sins. We've been taught to believe Jesus can forgive and will and forgive any sin. Murderers can be forgiven. Thieves can be forgiven. Adulterers can be forgiven. Yankee fans can be forgiven. Deshaun Watson can be forgiven. Houston Texans fans, he can be forgiven. Yes, even him, even us, even the ones among us who do the worst imaginable things can be forgiven. That's the gospel. 
That's the whole point, and that's what's so beautiful about Jesus. But then we have this one teaching that just sort of sits like a pebble in our shoe, and we got to figure this one out. So what is this so-called unforgivable sin? Matthew 12 is where we will camp out today. So if you have a Bible, just kind of keep your thumb in it all day. We're going to be going back and forth to it. Matthew 12, verse uh, 31 is really where the unforgivable sin uh, teaching is. So this is what Jesus said. So I tell you, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven, Jesus said. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, that's Jesus, can be forg- or will be forgiven. But anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Wow. Okay. So anytime you come across a text so challenging, so brutally arresting, it's always a good idea to explore the context that gave rise to it. So before we we get too hung up on the anxiety of this unforgivable sin, it's important to do our homework like you would in any class at school and figure out what exactly precipitated Jesus to teach this this teaching that seems, on the face of it, to be out of line with the rest of his teachings about forgiveness. And so, um, just always remember, context matters. And anytime someone tries to pull a text or teach a text or use a text out of context against you or to manipulate you, then all that's left is the con, context. It's a con, all right? So, someone's manipulating you. That's not of God, okay? Always explore the context, for yourself, and you oftentimes will find the answers you're looking for there. Let's see if that's the case today. Matthew 12, a few verses before what we just read in verse 22. The scene begins this way. They brought, this is just the people, the the ordinary people, brought Jesus, a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, and Jesus healed him so that he could both walk, I'm sorry, talk and see. All the people were astonished and said, could this be the son of David? So when the Pharisees heard this, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. Just as a quick aside, we're going to keep going in Matthew 12, but I want to identify those two titles given to Jesus in this passage. First, the ordinary people called him potentially the son of David. That was a messianic title. Very common among the Jews in those days, that was the name or the brand for the person who would be the Messiah, God's chosen one, who would reestablish the throne of God, Israel, Jerusalem, and chase out the Romans and all other invaders. That was the son of David in their minds. And they're wondering, is this guy it? Because he's doing all these crazy miracles. So maybe he's the one. That's what the Pharisees are responding to. The Pharisees were Jesus' chief adversaries. They didn't appreciate Jesus stealing their spotlight and their followers and things like that in their minds, right? And, and they, they said, no, it's not the son of David. He's doing this by the power of Beelzebul. What's that name? So Beelzebul is very simple. I don't want to spend too much time on this, but it is another name for Satan in the scriptures. So they are accusing Jesus of casting out these demons and doing these miracles in Satan's name and by the power of Satan, all right? Pretty, pretty hefty accusations to level against the Son of God, but that's uh, what, what happened in this passage. Let's keep going. Uh, verse 25 says, Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, so he's talking to the Pharisees, to them, because they were the ones thinking this, 
Every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined. Every city or household divided against itself will not stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? And if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your people drive them out? Actually, the word for people there is sons. So he's saying, your sons are driving out the same demons I'm driving out. So who's, in whose name are they doing that or by whose power? So then they will be your judges. So that's a practical argument Jesus is offering at the top of this passage. So he's saying, how can this even work? Make it make sense that I'm casting out Satan's own soldiers in Satan's name. I'm doing Satan's dirty work for him. And what he has me doing here is defeating his own army. That doesn't even make sense. This is a practical argument that Jesus is making. He's using logic against the Pharisees. Okay, so, so then he says, um, or again, I'm sorry, uh, let me start that verse before. But if by the Spirit of God, if it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. All right, so that's a, this is a theological argument. The kingdom of God has come upon you if it is by the Spirit of God. And this you will not get unless you're a first century Jewish person probably because they believed, the Pharisees believed and taught, and it was widely believed among the Jews of that time, that the Spirit of God had withdrawn from the people, that the Spirit of God was not active among the people and hadn't been since the days of the prophets, hundreds of years before. So if the Spirit of God had come back in their framework, what that meant is that the kingdom of God had come. This was the sort of end of days, the last days, the kingdom come, right? So Jesus is making a theological statement about himself. He says, I am the one, and the Spirit is the one that is doing this through me, and so the kingdom has come. And he's challenging his enemies to reckon with that. So there's a practical argument, a theological one. And then finally, he says, or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can plunder his house. Whoever's not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. These are Jesus' words. So this is right before he offers the deep track, unforgivable sin teaching. So this is a rhetorical argument. We had practical, we had theological, this is rhetorical. And he is laying waste to his uh, enemies in this passage. What he's saying is, when you invade a man's house to plunder and steal from him, you first should tie the strong man of the house up, the man of the house, you should tie him up. And what Satan is saying is essentially he is storming the gates of hell. He has bound Satan. He has tied up the strong man of hell, Satan, and he is now plundering Satan's house, taking from Satan his own possessions. In a sense, he's saying I'm claiming the lost from hell itself and bringing them out. And implied in this teaching is also an accusation against the Pharisees because who are they tying up? They're tying up Jesus. And what does that make them? If they're tying up the strong man of heaven and plundering his house and taking God's possessions or God's children or, you know, his, his, uh, his people out of heaven, where, where are they taking them? So his accusation or insinuation here is that they are working on behalf of Satan while as they accuse Jesus of doing the same, they're actually doing it. They're seeking to tie up heaven's own strong man and plunder heaven for the sake of hell. That, that is a powerful rhetorical 
argument. So we have logic, we have theology, and we have rhetoric. Jesus is just a genius. And I'm, this is not the sermon. I'm just in awe of Jesus sometimes, and I wish that I could preach like he does. <laughs> okay, so uh, Jesus is, is saying clearly who he is and what he came to do. Then he levies the deep track of verse 31 about, I tell you, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven, but blasphemy against the Spirit cannot or will not. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, will not be forgiven in this age or in the age to come. All right. That can be a little bit of a downer, if you think about it. It can be a little discouraging. It can be a little bit of a source of anxiety. Like, have I already been canceled out? Because I think I remember a time that I said something funny about the Holy Spirit once, or I made fun of people who were caught up in the Spirit, you know, stuff like that. Are we done here, God? Are you done with me? Because of that, like, it can be so easy to nitpick your past and wonder if you've done that one thing and crossed that one line. I encourage you to not go down that path. And before you even start, like, to... To go down that path, I encourage you to be encouraged more than you are discouraged by what else Jesus says in this passage. How extraordinary is it that the authority figure of the universe, that the Son of God put on skin to walk among us, and he came from heaven to tell us, first and foremost, that any and every sin will be forgiven. Like, dwell on that first. That every sin can be forgiven. Every slander can be forgiven. You can even come after Jesus himself by name and be forgiven. Like, start with that, because that is an extraordinary claim, right? Before we get on to the unforgivable part, <laughs> at least dwell on this for a second, because I'm not sure we can understand the deep track part of this without understanding this first. And the simple fact is, Every kind of sin can be forgiven. Everything you've ever done, the worst thing you've ever done or even conceived of anyone doing is forgivable. You cannot out-sin the reach of God's grace. How extraordinary is that? There is nothing too bad. Right? So we think about the most heinous things people can do. You know, genocide. Really? Forgivable? Really? That's what he said, every kind of sin and slander. Genocide, slavery, my God. How far does his grace go, you know? People who manipulate others and use them and oppress them can be forgiven. People who wear white after Labor Day can be forgiven. People who go to a Texas barbecue joint and ask for sauce can also be forgiven. Believe it or not, it's possible because that's how far his grace will go. And so we should celebrate that first and foremost. And it's not just that. He, he's presenting himself as royalty, right? Now, most of us have not lived in a kingdom of this world before, but if you had, you would know there are certain things that you just cannot say about the king, certain things no one is allowed to say or do in his presence, right? And some of the some of the monarchies that remain, very few monarchies remain, but some of their protocols today still harken back to that day, right, where you can't turn your back to the king. You still can't turn your back to the monarchs of, of England, for example, the United Kingdom. 
I mean, they don't cut your head off for it anymore like they used to. But, you know, some guy in a fuzzy hat yells at you or something. I don't know. And, um, and so there's still, there's still consequences for these acts. But, but the, the fact is that you could not disrespect a monarch at all without fear of death. And Jesus comes along as the monarch of monarchs. And he says, it's fine. Come at me. Come at me, bro, with your words and your slander and your insults and your contempt. Come at me. It's fine. It can be forgiven. If that's where your hearts and, and heads have been at, it's fine. Let's, let's do something different starting now. It can be forgiven. How extraordinary is it that this king is so radically different than the kings of this world? That's exactly who Jesus came to be for us. So how do we reconcile that with what he says about this unforgivable sin? Right, so I just want to set the table by talking about the good stuff first. <laughs> and now we're going to get to the hard stuff. Because he says it, whether we like it or not, he says that indeed uh, slander or uh, blaspheme, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit cannot be forgiven. Why not? Why not? What makes blasphemy against the Spirit so much more offensive than blasphemy against the Son, for example. Where to understand this a little better, we have to have a general working knowledge of the Trinity. And my perception is that most Christians don't have a very good working knowledge of the Trinity. I have failed to do a lot of teaching about the Trinity. And one of the most common questions that I hear from skeptics who have gone to church here for years even, they're like, well, what about the Trinity? I still don't get it. Three in one? So instead of me teaching you this very difficult concept, I invited someone else to do that today because I like to pass the buck. And, uh, and I needed this to be brief. And brevity is not my spiritual gift. Amen, Story Church? Okay, yeah, okay, you're talking now. Okay, I get it. Okay, <laughs> thanks for that. So uh, that is one of the forgivable sins, thankfully. But uh, I, I invited my friend Jim Stern, who is a pastor, um, who doesn't uh, pastor a church. He sort of a pastor to pastors. He, he consults with pastors and helps with leadership issues and does some teaching. Um, and uh, he also goes to church here with his family. I, I invited him into the Maybe God podcast studio with me here on this campus uh, to as succinctly as possible explain and teach how the Trinity works and how we can grow more intimate uh, in our relationship with each person of the Trinity. So here it is. It's a little over five minutes long, so kind of settle in with this mentally and, and let's, uh, let's see what Jim has to say about the Spirit. Classic Trinitarianism states we believe in one God who's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Father's not the Son, the Son's not the Spirit, the Spirit's not the Father, on and on and on and on. Where it, where it, where it stops at, where classic, classical Orthodox Trinitarianism stops at, is it then doesn't go to the effect of, well, how do I have a relationship with each person of the Trinity? So we teach and train people in what we call relational Trinitarianism, hmm. where we take Orthodox Trinitarianism and then we add on to it, okay, now that I believe in one God, who's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, how do I now live in a relationship with each person in distinction from the others? Wow. So you can have a solid relationship with the Father and a bad relationship with the Son. You can have a great relationship with Jesus and no relationship with the Holy Spirit. And so we want to expose that and draw that out because each person in the Trinity loves you. You are created for intimacy with each person of the Trinity, and you are designed to experience different manifestations of life, different benefits in life through each person of the Trinity in distinction from the others. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So that yeah. is something I think most people, even most Christians, have never heard or no. considered before. How do we foster intimacy with each person of the Trinity? How do we foster intimacy with each person of the Trinity? And so the way that we, the way that we do this, the way that we explain this with great clarity is to, 
is to pick a volunteer. Let me pick you. <laughs> Here I am. Hey, man, you got voluntold, man. Here we go. Okay. And so uh, I understand you had a pretty good relationship with your mom and dad. Sure. All right. Still do. Yeah, yeah. Great. That's beautiful. Uh, congratulations, by the way. That Thank is a, you. That's a I gift that a lot, of us, a lot of us don't get to have. Uh, so l let's walk through it in this way. Uh, what do you call your mom? Mama. Mama. And what do you call your dad? Dad. And, and there's no confusion about that? No. What would happen if you called your mom dad? That would be very strange. That'd be yeah. crazy. That'd be crazy. And yeah. what would happen if you call your dad mom? Uh, he'd probably slap me or something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not going to go over very well. Yeah. But both of them love you. Sure. Both of them love you. Do they love you in similar ways? Similar but different, sure. Yeah. And yeah. then there are di different things that they do. Yeah, exactly. If I gave you a list of ways in which one of your parents loved you, but I took the name off, and I didn't tell you who it was, I just told you what they did, how easily could you tell me whether that was your mom or your dad? Easily, 100%. 100%. Totally. If I gave it to you 10 times, 10 different lists, out of 10, how many of those are you going to get I right? I think probably 10. Okay, so here's the deal, man. The way that this is so energizing, the way that you grew in intimacy with your mom is by understanding with clarity the specific ways in which she wants to love you. The way that you got to know your mom was through the specific things that she did for you in your life. Right. The way that you got to know your dad was through the specific ways in which he loved you in your life, mm. in distinction. Now, what would happen if you went to your dad and asked him to love you in the way that your mom did? Yeah, it wouldn't work. Yeah, it'd be yeah, frustrated. Sure. And you would get frustrated, and there would be lack of intimacy. Mm -hmm. And you wouldn't get to enjoy the benefits of your dad's love because you're trying to force your dad to love you in the way that your mom loves you. You're trying to force your mom to love you in the way that your dad loves you. Wow. No intimacy, no benefit, massive confusion, even though I believe that I have a mom and a dad. Yeah. So are you saying that's like, that's what we do when we just have God conceive of God as a blob? Yes. Rather than, okay. Yeah. So we call it the God blob where most of us as followers of Jesus exist in the God blob. And in, and in the God blob, the Trinity is just a mess. Mm -hmm. When we read the Bible, we see Father, Son, Holy Spirit, God, Lord. It's all just a thing. We know it's there. We don't really understand how it works. We know that there's distinctions, but we don't really get it. And so we just kind of lob it up together. This lady was telling me the other day, when I pray, I just pray and just hope that they can figure out who it is I'm praying <laughs> to and how this is supposed to work. Yeah. I said, that's a great place to start at. But as we progress in maturity in our faith, we want to grow up into Trinitarian intimacy and clarity so that we can walk in those benefits for our lives. So in the same way that you grow in intimacy with your mom through the specific things that she does, intimacy with your dad through the specific things that he does, we are to grow up into intimacy with the Father because of the very specific things that he wants to do in our lives. Intimacy with the Son because of the very specific things he wants to do. Intimacy with the Holy Spirit because of the very specific things that he wants to do. And they will not do what the others are tasked to do or want to do. Wow. So for example, when I'm reading the Bible and something pops, when I hear a great sermon and something pops, we say, who is it that's causing the pop? Well, the one in the Trinity that's causing the pop is the Holy Spirit. Wow. Because it's his responsibility to illuminate God's word, our Father's word in our lives. Yeah. And so whenever there is the pop, I go, 
Thank you, Holy Spirit. <laughs> and now my intimacy with him is growing. Because you're calling him by name. Yes, you know by exactly, name. specifically who you're referring to yes. as the person of the Trinity. And it, it opens you up for more deeper intimacy. Deeper intimacy. So in other words, there's like nothing necessarily wrong with starting with praying more. Uh, to whoever. Yeah, to sort of the blob. Yes. But as we grow in faith, there's more. Yes. There's more to be discovered and more intimacy to be had and enjoyed there. Yes. And until we get to that point where we're being specific with the personage of the Trinity, uh, uh, I think we're missing something, and there's something there's something really beautiful to explore there. Yeah, something that opens up a whole new world. For yeah, us. because you and I were created. The only the, the primary reason that you and I were created was for intimacy with the Father, with the Son, and with the, it's a design issue. Your fulfillment in life, your satisfaction in life, comes not through effort, but by relaxing back in to the reality that our Father loves you, that Jesus loves you. And that the Holy Spirit loves you, and throughout your life, you can grow and cultivate deeper, intimate relationships with each person in the Trinity. We do it with our moms and dads all the time. Sure, sure. All no. the time, and it prov it provides an incredibly easy, accessible template to understand how this is supposed to work in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So awesome, Jim. Yeah. You've blessed us with this. Thank you for yeah. breaking it down for us and giving us clarity. And I can't wait for everybody in our church to hear this. So thank you so much. Absolutely appreciate yeah. the opportunity. Absolutely. Yep. I really am so uh, grateful for Jim's clarity on this and uh, how important it is uh, and really how life-giving it can be to look at it like you're falling in love with God, one God in three different ways through three different persons uh, in the same Godhead, right? So, so the, the Father and Son and Spirit all are persons and all have uh, certain characteristics and roles through which they love us and they show their love for us. And, uh, and so the the Father is called in Scripture a creator, right, and a giver of gifts. Um, the, the, the Son is known as sort of a uh, savior, a warrior, um, someone who storms the gates of hell, right, a, a living sacrifice even. And then what about spirit? What do we do with the Holy Spirit? What are his, not its, by the way, what are his um, characteristics and roles specific to us in our lives so that we can grow in familiarity and intimacy with the Spirit. This is huge, and especially in terms of understanding the difference between blaspheming God the Father and God the Son and blaspheming the Spirit. What does it mean? So what does the Spirit do? Who is the Spirit? Um, and how does the Spirit love us? So the, the Bible refers to the Spirit as, uh, as, a, uh, as a gift, um, that Jesus sends, the Son sends the gift, he says, in John 16. In fact, there's a lot of teaching uh, from John 16 about the Spirit. But the, the, we have this idea that the Spirit is poured out on believers, specifically on believers. The Holy Spirit is poured out. So blasphemy of the Spirit or against the Spirit is an issue for believers. That's an important thing. We'll talk about that more in just a second. The Spirit uh, delivers and develops certain spiritual gifts among, again, believers and within believers. The Spirit sanctifies believers. Um, and, and in all of these different roles and characteristics, there seems to be one common thread, and it's summed up pretty well, I think, in John 16. Uh, in the, the verse, I think it was just on the screen. I want to get it back. John 16, verse 8, says that when Spirit comes, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world about sin and righteousness and judgment. So conviction is the first uh, sort of effect of the Spirit 
the Spirit's presence in your life. It will be conviction first. Before the feel-goodness, before the warm fuzzies, before, you know, all this, my heart was overcome with just a feeling of love. Most often the Spirit brings conviction to our hearts, which doesn't always feel good, right? And we have a choice to make about what to do with that prompting of the Holy Spirit. And some of us will receive that in humility. We will receive that conviction and that reception, that humble reception of conviction then leads us toward repentance. And repentance is where forgiveness is at. That's where forgiveness is experienced. But some of us will be confronted by the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And because we have more pride than humility in us, we will refuse to believe that that is for us. Maybe the Holy Spirit convicts, but he convicts people who are worse than me. And for a lot of people, for prideful people, and I would venture to risk this by saying, like, for people who really are at risk of the unforgivable sin, as we're calling it, that's going to be the reaction to uh, the Holy Spirit's prompting to confess and repent. Because for that group, for that person, the only unforgivable sin is the sins other people are doing against me. This isn't about like liberal or conservative or one or the other. It's not, I've seen church, churches across the spectrum with people in them that fall prey to this kind of thinking. You know, it's like, uh, you know, we're just going to judge the sins that the people we don't like are doing and call those the unforgivable ones because our sins were already forgiven because we're so religious and good. And that's, I think, at the heart of the message here from Jesus is that the more religious you are, the more in danger you are. <laughs> he says this three times in the Gospels, and every time he says blasphemy of the Spirit is like unforgivable, he says it to the most religious people. He didn't say it to the ordinary group of peasants that brought him the, the people to be healed. He said it to the Pharisees, who were the most religious among them, right? They knew the Scriptures front and back. And that's who he says every time. He says, watch out, watch out for this one thing. You've got everything else, but this one thing will be the end of you. And it is unforgivable. Why is it unforgivable? Because without repentance, there is no forgiveness. Without repentance, there is no. With repentance, anything is forgiven. Everything is forgiven. Without repentance, we're on our own. And the elixir, the tempting, sort of tantalizing thing about religion is that it will convince you that you can do this. You can earn your forgiveness by being a good person and living a good life and going to church more often than not. That's what religion does to us. It teaches us that we can handle this. We've got this under control. In fact, we've got God under control because how could God not accept us with this amazing life we're living down here? That's how deceptive the prideful religious heart can be. But the humble heart refuses to see things that way. The prideful religious heart will say, uh, I reject my need to repent because I'm already saved, because I'm me, I'm good. The humble heart, even if he's been in church for decades, will still say to his dying day, I once was lost, but now I'm found. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. What a wretch, what a wretch, what a wretch. And that's the difference the gospel makes 
It's not that you beat yourself up for your sin. It's that you're just keenly aware of how deep it goes and how great God must be to forgive a wretch like you. What an awesome God. So the point isn't to live your whole life, you know, Uh, with fear and anxiety about trying to avoid this one act that God just refuses to overlook, this one thing that we can do to be unforgiven. No, the point is to walk through life humbly, fully aware of how undeserving you have been to be saved and forgiven, and yet you are saved and forgiven still by the grace of God. Though you do not belong, who really belongs with God? That's a mantra in the church. You belong, everyone belongs, belong, belong, belong. Okay, who really belongs with God? Not one of us. And the humble heart will remember that. Day after day, years after you've been saved, the humble heart remembers. The prideful heart struggles because while rejecting Jesus can be a issue of religion, rejecting the Holy Spirit is an issue of rebellion. You can reject Jesus on philosophical grounds, but once you receive or, or know or access the Spirit, you resist the Spirit on prideful grounds alone. This is how John Calvin put it. John Calvin said, the unpardonable sin occurs when people who, with evil intention, resist God's truth, although by its brightness they are so touched that they cannot claim ignorance. Hebrews 6 is a, I can't finish this passage without telling you what Hebrews 6 says because it's so devastating to the prideful religious heart. This is what Hebrews 6 verse 4 through 6 says, it is impossible for those who once have been enlightened by God, by God's spirit, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. Impossible. That's devastating. And my concern with this message is that most people are going to hear it and receive it humbly. The people that need to hear it the most are going to be the first to turn it off. Because of pride. Y'all, this isn't about checking the right boxes and avoiding the right little mistakes. This This is about the state of your heart. And instead of avoiding the unforgivable sin, this is about resisting the temptation by religious ways to become, in your mind, and a person beyond the need for repentance. And from heaven's perspective, you've become an unforgivable person. Because without repentance, there can be no forgiveness. So what this means for the, those who are new, and, and, and those who've been around a while, but especially those who are new to the faith and freaked out by this idea of an unforgivable sin, all this means is that even in your skepticism, even in your cynicism and doubting about God and religion and guys like me and churches like this and the Bible and everything, When God graces you with any semblance of his presence, when he moves, when you're alone on the water, on the lake, at the beach, or on a mountaintop, or in an airplane, or when he moves as you're falling asleep at night, or when he blesses you with a dream that changes you, when you sense his presence by his Holy Spirit, do not look away. Do not run away. 
Do not close your ears or your minds to what he is doing and who he is. Lean into those promptings of his spirit. Don't reject him. Receive him. Let him soften your heart. Let him show you his ways. It's so much better than anything you've tried before. And to the believer who struggles with pride in his own track record or where he spends his Sunday mornings or the kind of godly family he's raised or all the ways we try to boost ourselves, be careful. Be careful not to become an unforgivable person who has no need of conviction and repentance because the truth is none of us belongs here. By his grace, we're here anyway. And it will always be by his grace and not by our doing. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we thank you for uh, this teaching. Although it has been a challenge and it's been hard to hear at times, the idea that for some... It can get to the point where there's no hope. It's just, for us, may it be a cautionary tale today and a reminder that every heart can reach a point of of hardness and um, contempt toward your promptings uh, to convict and call us out. We can so be resistant and hesitant about repentance and our need for it that we lose sight of how amazing your grace is for us. So God, call us out, call us to humility, and help us to be receptive, Lord, I pray in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.